And also the gods can be temperamentally moving targets. And I think, but I think that for the most important gods, it's often the case that they are, in the term I've used, and I think Collins used it in some of his work too, bipolar in the sense that they, they, they have a kind of destructive aspect and, a kind of, and, and a, an enlivening aspect, a benevolent and, and punitive um, power that is actually of a piece. Welcome to It Means What It Means, the podcast in which a guy with some college and a day job asks experts questions about biblical studies. Merry Christmas. This is the final episode of 2023. Hopefully you're listening to this on Christmas Eve. If not, that's fine. It's a podcast. You can listen to it whenever you want. Today's guest is Brent Strawn. This is a really broad conversation, so I won't try to encapsulate it here. This is the first episode that I will be using AI-generated show notes. Some feedback on that would be great compared to the show notes I have been writing myself. If you like this better, please just give me a heads up. I think I think they do a better job, the AI. There are some things that I have to correct, but other than that, it's a lot easier to just let AI do it. And I think it actually puts more information out there. I misuse a word in this, and I think I've been misusing it for, if not a decade, very nearly a decade. The word is perspicacity. And Daniel Rodriguez, good friend that he is, shadow editor for this podcast, listens to everything before it even hits Patreon in most cases. And he asked me, what does perspicacity mean? And when I looked it up to make sure I knew, I found out it means shrewdness, and I thought it meant, like, persistent intensity. And so I feel silly. Leave it in. Call it out. Acknowledge my mistake. I won't go through what all of the episodes are. I, I have beaten that scheduling thing to death in the past, but I will say... New Year's Day will be Ben Witherington, and after that, every other Monday is the goal for episode releases for free. So I'm looking forward to having that regularity. I know the initial schedule that I set out for the year was very spaced out. It was very difficult for anyone to actually get into the podcast as a listener with quarterly episodes and then... Even deciding to go monthly, that's quite a wait. I may have not been able to retain people that I otherwise may have attracted as listeners. So I'm looking forward to that every other week, every other Monday, having a new episode come out. And I will probably bunch episodes together more closely if and when I get more contributors from books or, you know, people talking on very similar subjects. And there'll be special episodes that I want to put on a certain date or something. And yeah, I'm looking forward to that. There's starting to be a little bit more meat on the bones of the podcast, and that is exciting for me. So, without further ado, here's my conversation with Brent Strawn. Brent A. Strawn, welcome to the podcast. 
Thanks for having me on the podcast, Jared. So before we get going, can you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? I presently am a professor of Old Testament and professor of law at Duke University, where I teach in primarily in the Duke Divinity School and have a secondary appointment in the Duke University School of Law. I've been here about five years. This is the beginning of my fifth year. And before that, I taught for 18 years at Emory University, the Candler School of Theology, and graduate school there. And uh, before that, I taught at Asbury Theological Seminary for three years. And before that, who wants to go back that far, Jared? Not me. You don't? Okay. <laughs> I do if you do. But if you don't, that's fine. Before that, I was, I was in grad school. So, okay. Uh, yeah. We're all getting older. There's nothing wrong with that. That's um, right. That's right. So this is my 26th year of teaching which it's gone fast. I can't believe it. And I'm just starting my, what, that, I'd be starting my second quartile of teaching, is that, if my math is right. Congratulations. <laughs> That's exciting. Only 75 more years to go. <laughs> and if the first 26 went by this quickly, who knows how long yeah, that'll feel. Exactly. <laughs> okay. So the topic of conversation today is your chapter in Divine Doppelgangers, Yahweh's Ancient Lookalikes. And the chapter is Yahweh, Kimosh, and the rule of faith. Actually, am I pronouncing that right? Is it Kimosh or Kimosh? I either, I hear it both ways. I think you're fine. Either way. Tomato, tomato. Kimosh. Okay. Kimosh so, would probably be how it, in Hebrew, but the Kimosh is how I often say it myself. Kamish okay. and Akkadian and stuff like that. I'll probably just jump around, pronounce it every different way. Yeah, no problem. So we'll start where you start. What is the significance of the fact that Yahweh has lookalikes in the ancient world? Yeah, so I think there's a couple parts of the significance and this this essay, as you know, and maybe the listeners do as well, is part of this larger book on on Yahweh's lookalikes. Divine Doppelgangers is what it's called, edited by Colin Cornell. And the idea that motivated the the book, the collection, Colin and I are, are good friends. And that motivated my article was what is then the, this issue? Why do we, why does Yahweh, the God of Israel, look so similar to other deities? What, what's the significance of that? And I think the significance of that, as you've asked, is, is at least twofold. There's an historical significance. How do we explain this similarity or understand it? And then there's also a, a theological significance for those people who belong to communities of faith that descend from the Old Testament, Hebrew Bible, the New Testament, biblical faith, as it were, that is to say, particularly Christians and Jews, what do they do with this? What ought one do with this fact that the God of Israel, who Christians confess as the God and Father of Jesus Christ, looks a lot like some of these other ancient Near Eastern gods? That's, is that a problem or not a problem? I think that's the significance. Is that that problematic? And it's historical in my mind and theological. And this is one of the questions I put toward the end that I sent you, but I think it follows nicely on your answer to that question. So are scholars who really only study, say, Kimosh or Baal, are they as interested in differentiating them from Yahweh as scholars who study, usually in a religious context, who study Yahweh mm -hmm. in, in di differentiating Yahweh from those other gods? Yeah, I think the answer is probably not for a couple reasons. One is that a god like Kimosh, the god of Moab, is not particularly well attested, I, not like the God of Israel, at least. And also, and as a result, perhaps that's what my article eventually argues, 
there is not an ongoing lived community <laughs> of Chemosh. So there's no real interest in Chemosh other than a kind of antiquarian one. And that antiquarian one has to deal with the fact that the data pool is, is relatively confined. So there's not, as it were, a, a center for Chemosh studies at, you know, Harvard University or something like that, or a chair in Chemosh studies at Duke Divinity School. And I think, so that's one thing. Yeah, they're not, there's not as much like ability to carve out a Chemosh profile that's as robust. And also there's a the theological lack of significance. There's a historical attenuation of significance because of the data set. Now, some other deity like Marduk or Ninurta or somebody where you have a lot of data from the Near East about such a god, there's more there that would maybe lead one to think about differentiation from other gods. But the second part of the answer I would give to your questions is that I think there has been at least in some circles, in a major emphasis, maybe we could say even an inordinate emphasis on differentiating, making sure Yahweh isn't too much like those gods. And that, I think, is often a kind of apologetic concern, a confessional concern. And it's in some cases, not always, but in some cases, overstated. And there's no, since there's no comparable Chemosh community of faith, there's no need for that or no one doing that on the Chemosh side. But I do think people who are interested in comparative religion, comparative analysis, comparative theology, would think about the similarities and differences, not just from Yahweh towards others, but from other gods towards others, and including perhaps Yahweh. It, it seems like on the other end of wanting to point out similarities w would be the idea that it's just another religion like any other. And it, so you right. bring up the apologetic argument in favor of distinguishing Yahweh, differentiating mm -hmm. Yahweh. And then there's a combative side that almost takes like a, like a Joseph Campbell kind of view that just, oh, it's all the same story everywhere. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. there are people doing a better and worse job of that. That's right. For sure. But ancient Near East studies, which, sorry, this is monologue but I'm trying to make sure I'm well, understanding please. your responses. Is someone who studies ancient Near East, they might specialize in a certain area, but as it applies to religion, some of these gods that we don't have as much material on, no one's really going to be spending that much time on them. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's right. And the, and in part the, again, the lack of a lived religious community that motivates a theological, not just historical engagement. So again, Yahweh's lookalikes is just on the one hand, an historical or we could even say a literary question, observation. What, what is the similarity here? Why, why is Yahweh sometimes presented as a storm deity? Why is Yahweh sometimes presented as a desert deity? Is there a lineage here? Does that go back to a kind of um, precursor? Whatever. These are just historical literary <laughs> questions. They become fraught with religious significance if the community of faith, if there is a community of faith that believes in one of these deities as real and as having agency in the world today. But yeah, I think overly the, identifying Yahweh as overly dissimilar, or maybe even more than that, entirely dissimilar, is an overstatement of one approach to this question. And the other one is that. Yahweh is just entirely one of the gang, as I put it, <laughs> entirely absorbed into the ancient Near Eastern God milieu without remainder. 
And I think both of these sorts of extremes are just that they're extremes and the truth is in the middle. So there's not, it's not that Yahweh is entirely the same, overly similar. And also that Yahweh is not entirely different, overly dissimilar, that something in between is, is more likely correct. So one of the things that stood out, I think with this book overall, like reading multiple essays made me wonder, there's a pantheon in the ancient Near East that, that doesn't seem to be as cooperative as say ancient Greece. And what, is there something historical that makes that like that differentiates the ancient Near East from ancient Greece? Because they're not, it's not like they were necessarily that much more culturally unified in ancient Greece. There's still disparate mm -hmm. kingdoms and things like that. How, how do we get a pantheon that just doesn't seem to mesh well together? I think it has to do with the, the characters, of course, right? And there's intrigue among the gods in Greek mythology as well. There are some standout moments in, say, Ugaritic mythology where people do things, that is, gods do things that you're not entirely, you wouldn't think they would normally get away with and not threatening the high god Ale, for instance, and things like that. But you know how those gods and the dynamics or intrigue of the gods manifest, or actually your question is what explains it. I don't know if I know, or if anyone can fully know there's, there are, there's at least one broad school of thought that suggests everything that people write about gods in, in the ancient Near East, if not all the time, is just a projection of, of human reality. So that's why the gods organize themselves into family systems in the ancient Near East, because the family system was the dominant one, the house of the father, or this is why the pantheon looks a little bit bureaucratic because of the nature of ancient Near Eastern political systems. And that makes a good bit of sense. It, it, it doesn't have to be the entire story, however. It's a somewhat reductive account in my mind. There is what one of my former students and, and friends, Davis Hankins, says there is a kind of science fiction approach to, to, to questions like these, which is to say that people can, in fact, write things and imagine things that they don't actually have any personal experience with. So that not everything that happens in Ugaritic mythology or ancient Near Eastern intrigue among the gods has to reflect an actual lived experience that someone saw or what they could, they, they just maybe imagined it or thought of it just like a science fiction writer hasn't been to planet X, Y, or Z, but writes about it with remarkable detail and verve and all the rest. I don't know if we can ever fully know that question that you're asking or answer it. I, I do think there are people who could tell you what they think is the answer. And I think that answer would be probably at least some, in some ways, in my humble opinion, reductive to just the human realities that these the authors of the myths experienced or came up with. But I, I think that there can be more than that and that there was true theological speculation thinking in the ancient world. And that meant that they were capable of imagining and thinking about the gods in ways that transcended just their own quotidian existence. Um, I think that's what I begin to say in part to your question. I'm a little bit further away from the direct piece of it, but at least that's how I'd start to say. No, I just want to hear what you think. So it's, 
you could have taken us in a completely different direction and said, that's not a good question. This would be a good question and I'll answer that one. The sci-fi of it all did make me think, I, I think there's a, what I like to call the stargatification where people like to, the ancient aliens type thing, thing that explains it all because yeah. pretty much everywhere in the ancient world, like literally everywhere, people are trying to explain big things happening and they're doing the best right. that they can. I think that's really reductive of the idea that like they weren't sophisticated thinkers. So they right. give really, right. they give silly explanations for things when they're pretty complex. So the more oh, I'm learning, sure. so my next line of thinking about the history of it is it seems like a lot of the differentiation comes with the exile where mm. the, the worshipers of Yahweh start to really peel out and try to distinguish not just their God, but themselves from their mm. neighbors and their neighbor's gods. Is that fair to say? I think that's fair to say for most, for a lot of scholars, you're right, Jared. And I think it's partly because that scenario, which we know at least more about than we might in some other maybe or especially early period we know something about that we also can like uh, not only speculate but really reason i think in a reasonable way about soci sociological dynamics in such a situation a small communities exiled communities that have been forced to uh, migrate um involuntarily to other places that live within colonial empires and so on and so forth there's research done on those sorts of things, especially in modern reflexes. And so we can reason analogously back, I think, to, to the to Babylonian Gola, the exile, and so on and so forth. And that makes a good bit of sense. I think the question I have, I would say the dynamic of differentiation, of sociological differentiation, is, in my mind, a kind of ubiquitous human issue. And I, a little bit I know about this suggests that maybe some of these differentiations are baked into our brain, that we're hardwired to differentiate who's in our crew and who isn't in our crew. And that probably has um, biological roots in terms of the evolution of the species, right? Who can we make snap judgments on who's part of our tribe, who's part of our insider group versus who's on our outsider group. So that dynamic, I think, is probably ubiquitous to humankind and social circumstances and social groups. And so in my mind, it's not that Israel was like, hey, we all get, we're all the same until the exile and then, hey, we're not the same. But I do think the exile does pronounce, bring out in special relief, high definition, certain things that within their own society wouldn't have been as distinctive. If everybody circumcises their boys on the eighth day, it says something you do. If you go and have to live in a small ghetto in Babylon and they don't do that, then it starts really looking as a, a major sociocultural differentiation from the dominant community or Sabbath or kosher laws and dietary laws. All those things are, I think, are present in pre-exilic Israel as well. And they just may not have the same sort of sociological punch that they have once you get into the exile or you start living this faith in a, in a context where that faith is not the dominant one. I'm realizing there's something I don't want to forget to ask about. So I'm just going to throw this in here. Yeah, and, go for and it. Some of the thoughts that I have, that, that, what, that, that answer popped into my head. If they're still there in a minute, I'll ask them. You talk about inadequate responses. Can you talk about what those responses are responding to? And then we'll get into each of them. 
Yeah. So the inadequate response is, as I, I mentioned earlier, I think is that, oh, Yahweh is just too similar, just almost identical to all these other gods. Or Yahweh's completely different from all these other gods. So a kind of complete over againstness the in the to the environment or just yeah, Yahweh is basically Marduk, is basically Kimash. They're all just the same. And so those are the two distinctions, the, the kind of extreme poles, as it were. And then you have scholars and works that are written around those poles or not necessarily in them completely, but near them and then, and then in the middle as well. So that's the two poles in brief, and I can talk more about them if, if you want, but I think that is, the, is where you were going initially, at least, yeah? Yeah. So I think the thing that I wanted to try to get a better understanding of, and, and I thought this as I was reading is for, for sure, don't forget to ask him. The first one is overly historicized. Can you, can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah. So I, I think that overly similar at one point in the essay, I do say, I think the problem with that one is that it is too enamored, historicized, Sorry. too enamored, too yeah, enamored, too enamored of history is what I say. Yeah. And so here, both I try, I'm trying to take uh, some shots at both sides, right? Rightly or wrongly, this equal opportunity offender essay. But I think what I mean by that is that there's sort of two problems with the overly similar approach. One is that overestimates, I think, what history can and cannot answer in this regard. I don't think that our historical tools and the data presently available can fully answer all the questions about the lookalikes. For instance, I don't think we can fully explain yet, at least not with any great detail or 100% certainty, any transfers, not any, but all of the transfer mechanisms that one would want to know ideally about how one idea gets from one culture to another culture. We can speculate about that. We can reason about it. We can say some reasonable things about it analogically and so forth. And the spread of religious ideas is something that the cognitive science of religion people talk about with on, on, on analogy with epidemiology and things like that. So the, sure, that's fine. But if in fact Yahweh is related to Baal or Chemosh or Kaos or whomever, I would like as a historian to know as much about the process of transfer by which that happened. And I think that the historical tools presently are not fully adequate to that job. That's one problem with an, an, a, a thoroughly or reductively historical or historicizing or historicist approach. The second problem that I think that kind of approach ha has is that it probably underestimates the Old Testament Hebrew Bible data per se, in and of themselves, there's a lot of that about the God of Israel, and it is um, variegated. So, you know, if I'm trying to do a, a God lineage, do I go back to the storm God or do I go to the desert God? Do I go to a uh, creator God? Do I go to war God? Um, you know, these pieces are also mixed up and meshed into other deity profiles in the Near East, but there's also some sort of specialization. God, the God of Israel doesn't have sub-deities to subcontract to. God, the God of Israel does all of this stuff. So it makes the lineage harder to, to trace. That's maybe my first point, but the same point is that the Old Testament data itself should be considered data. Yahweh is really Israel's God, right? And we have some brief attestation of of Yahweh's name elsewhere, but 
We don't really know anything about anybody else worshiping Yahweh like Israel does. And I think the third problem I have with an overly historicized approach is that I think this question of Yahweh's lookalikeness is not solely an historical question. And therefore, it's not going to be solely answerable with historical tools. I think it is a theological question, a religious question. And that means that some other tools will have to be engaged as well. I'm taking my pot shots at the overly historicized, or maybe I should say historicist kind of approach, but not because I think the historical approach is bad or wrong. I draw on it quite positively when I'm critiquing the other side, but because I worry about a kind of reductive historicist approach. So I would want a non-reductive historic, historical approach myself. But does that help out a little bit? It does. But so here's where I bumped on it is, and this is a situation I think is analogous, but please correct me if I'm wrong. So there was this movie I remember having a VHS copy of when I was a teenager. Yeah. And it, it basically, it's, oh, what if Jesus lived in, this was in the 90s, so 20th century America, and he's starting his following there. And I think this is probably a Western, if not specifically American way of thinking that the message of the Bible, of Jesus, of, of the Hebrew Bible, whatever, is a universal message. And I think it comes from the same place that the critique of yeah, this God's just like all the other gods, where we're universalizing things. I think there's a way that we, it's an abstraction. Like it, it's, it almost seems like, I think you're right. And also there's like this, this thinking has its roots in not really respecting historical context enough, which does lend itself to your critique that look at the end of the day, you have to say, this is what's available. We don't know anything that we like, anything that we write up or create or imagine to explain this is in fact, as imaginative as the creation of any of these gods to begin with. And I know that was a lot of words for me, but I'm just curious. Does does that make sense? yeah, I see what you're, where you're going, and I think that's right. Um, so there has been, you know, you, you've invoked it with the Joseph Campbell stuff. There's a kind of historicizing maybe move where all these gods are just, uh, you know, Southern Levantine deities or, you know, um, the kind of uh, deity imagined by people in ancient Southwestern Asia, that sort of thing. But another would be, yeah, the Joseph Campbell or, or Jungian kind of thing where this is just the, the human consciousness and it's all the same in that way. That's a kind of reductive move as well, more phenomenological maybe than historicizing. And that's where I think the historical data are really important because they say, no, actually there is something different between Marduk and Yahweh, right? There, there are historical data points. In some ways, every, and I got this initially from John Levinson's work, and I think he's exactly right. In some ways, every single religion is unique. At some level, every religion is unique. Religions can be compared, of course, but, and some of them are more similar than others. But in some ways, every deity, therefore, is also unique. And that, as you were implying and stating, is, in fact, a historical datum. And that was what I was getting at with the Old Testament as a datum as well. It has data about the deity and as a whole then the the bible the biblical witness in my mind is a a piece of historical data it is a datum that has to be reckoned with when we think about the god yahweh and so that suggests that overly similar 
is not quite right, at least in a reductive way. I, I think where things start to become troubling is when we find out that, and this is part of this is the similarities, but for example, there were no walls at Jericho at the time that there, uh, it's like archeology span has shown us this is the case. Now the question is for someone who believes in the Bible, how much does that matter to you? The question for someone mm -hmm. studying the Bible from an historical critical sense is, okay, does that matter? Does that mm -hmm. matter for this reading? Does that matter for other mm -hmm. passages? Right. Um, is that how you start to engage with this? I, I don't engage it, obviously, completely in this essay, but I think more generally what you're getting at, you know, for me is, is the way I do try to think about the relative, and I would definitely put it that way, the relative significance of historical data, historical critical data per se, I think that's probably better to put to the interpretive enterprise. And I think it does depend on the nature and scope and goal of the interpretive enterprise itself. There is a sense in which literature, even ancient literature can be interpreted, can be assessed, can be engaged, and maybe perhaps is best engaged as literature, qua literature. Historical data can, but are not necessarily required to produce good readings of that material. And even if we care about historical context deeply, which I think I do, I'd like to believe I do, and that my research does an adequate job of, I am quite aware of what I think are the limits of the historical critical endeavor, what it can and cannot do, can and cannot accomplish, and what it can and cannot prove. So I'd, I'd like to think that when I'm doing historical work or drawing on historical critical data, again, it's in a sort of non-reductive way. I don't want to overestimate what it can and cannot demonstrate, prove one way or the other, positivistically or negatively in some way. Um, I think what historians who are thoughtful and careful realize they are working with is a kind of probability game and what is more or less probable, and that is applicable to the interpretation of a literary text, but it's also perhaps of less import than it might be thought to be. When one reads a psalm, one can say something about maybe its date or its social location or its probable linguistic dating. This does not actually get us any closer to assessing the meaning of the psalm or the kind of effective impact of the psalm its religious, theological, emotional, ethical uh, significance and impact. So I think the historical context is one very important context to assess when we're doing work with scripture, Bible, whatever, but it's not the only one. And I think that also holds true in my approach to ancient Near Eastern literature. I want to appreciate those texts for what they actually say, not what they, not actually, not only what's behind them in some way. I want to just really think about what does this myth say about Baal? Not that it's a big elaborate cipher for Ugaritic kingship or something, but just let me just inhabit the story world for a while. And so I don't know if that fully answers your question, but I think that's how I begin to think about adjudicating different approaches and the proper deployment of historical critical approaches and data. I'm glad that you brought up Psalms because I, I got some questions about Psalm 29. Yeah. I know I sent one to you, but do, 
explain why I'm bringing up Psalm 29 to the listener. <laughs> you, you are bringing up Psalm 29, Jared. Well, you because... brought it up. Sorry, you brought it up. I'm bringing it up to you. I'm throwing it back in your face. Uh, it's because it's one of a, a parade examples of how for a long time people have thought this is a, a hymn to Baal. This is a Canaanite hymn to the storm god Baal. And it's been lightly edited, if that, and stuck in the Psalter where it now applies to Yahweh. So it's possible, according to some people, that Psalm 29 didn't have Yahweh in some form. It, it would have been Baal. And so it's, there's a debate about that, but that's at least a, a kind of famous position. I think it was maybe Ginsburg who did this first, but Frank Moore Cross made it very popular and he's been followed by many. Yeah, it's an example of how similar is Yahweh and Baal. So similar that you can just sub out their names and use the same hymn of praise to them. So that's, like, that's why I brought it up as an example of this similarity and dissimilarity question. So does this stem from, is Frank Moore Cross looking at an extant copy of something that like, oh, they clearly lined through Baal and they wrote <laughs> Yahweh. Is that right. how they come across this? How does that, how did that um, happen? Actually, well, it, first of all, it, hold on. First of all, what do you think? I think I'm a little bit undecided, actually. That's fair. I haven't, yeah, I haven't, I wrote this essay, I guess sometime in 2017, and I don't know if I've looked back at those arguments since then. So my, my, my memory may be quite fuzzy about Cross and Ginsburg. Ginsburg's essay, I'm looking at my footnote right now, was published in 1936. So it's that, that argument is at least so it's you know, nearly, nearly a hundred years old now. <laughs> but I think for people like Ginsburg who worked on the early, early like first generation and work, worker on the Ugaritic material and Cross, who was not long after that, his book was 40 years after that, but was also in that sort of maybe second generation of people working on the Ugaritic material. They are making their argument on the basis of a number of things. One is linguistic in terms of kind of the language that's used that, that includes things like the way the Hebrew poetry works. If there's parallel terms, if those parallel terms in Psalm 29 are also found in Ugaritic material, there's also just the kind of the content that seems odd for the Lord because the Lord is over the waters. That's fine. And the voice of the Lord's full of magic, all that's fine. But then when you've got like the storm, you always like a storm over this Mediterranean and it starts moving east and it, and it hits the coast, not at the Shephelah or anything like that. It's up there in Lebanon and it's breaking the cedars of Lebanon and you have Lebanon skipping like a calf and Syrian, this, the, this mountain in the north skipping as well. And then it goes to Kadesh and you're talking about in light of Lebanon, Kadesh in the north. So it just seems like this is always taking the wrong offering. <laughs> Yahweh should be going back I-85 south and instead took the I-85 north. And so it doesn't look like it makes sense for the God of Israel in Zion and Jerusalem in the south and, and ultimately at the capital city. And so what's going on with that? And so that's another thing, the location of these place names and the movement of the storm really reflects North Levantine realities. And why not Baal, who we know is the, is the storm god? 
So that's the kind of reasoning I think that goes into it. It's partly detailed, it's part, but we don't have, we don't have a version of Psalm 29 per se to Baal found in the ancient Near Eastern material. Yeah. So it's not like, exactly right. Yeah. yeah, Like, yeah, we didn't find the original copy and. That's right. That's right. It, they didn't, Frank Moore Cross didn't run it through Turnitin. I guess that's what I'm saying. He didn't run it through <laughs> Turnitin right. and then exactly. discover, ah, I got him. Um, the safest line and all that. I've been wondering about this too for a while. So the, these, you mentioned desert gods. I, I don't know that I'd ever heard of desert gods before you said that. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. when you talk about desert gods, storm gods, I think an agrarian god makes sense to me. I could tell, okay, what mm-hmm. but are we talking about temperament? Are we talking about ability? Are we talking about manifestation? What, what does that mean for mm-hmm. these different, yeah, specifically we'll say storm god and, and desert god, because you mentioned those. Mm-hmm. Um, a little bit of all the above. You said temperament, ability, and what, maybe what was the third one? I forget. You, you listed three possibilities. Manifestation? I think. Yeah. Yeah. Ability for sure. And there's going to be some overlap. The storm God would be one, obviously, that's important to farmers, right? To this day, people, when they, farmers in the States will pray for rain because they need rain to get those crops to grow. There's going to be overlap between some of these categories, but there, there are gods and goddesses of grain as well as the storm God who provides rain for the grain in the ancient world. And manifestation in the storm, ability to control the storm, to send the storm, to withhold the storm. Remember at the Elijah and the drought in Kings. And also temperament. Yes, I think that's part of it, that certain gods are known to be more bellicose than others. And, and also the gods can be temperamentally moving targets. And I think, but I think that for the most important gods, it's often the case that they are, in this term I've used, and I think Collins used it in some of his work too, bipolar in the sense that they have a kind of destructive aspect and a kind of, and a, an enlivening aspect, a benevolent and punitive um, power that is actually of a piece. They're not, they're two sides of the same coin, two, two sides of the same sword, maybe cut different ways, but they are united in the deity and they are rooted both in the deity's innate power, that deity's divinity is what allows the deity to manifest in this way. But you can have definitely gods who are associated with phenomena, I'm thinking like Sekhmet, in Egypt, who's associated with the hot winds and can be destructive, but also can be a protective deity as well, a goddess. Definitely, I think temperament, that's sometimes harder to discern if we don't have enough texts about them to determine that. We have a ton of texts about Yahweh's temperament, but we don't always have as much about Chemosh, say. Chemosh in the Misha stila, we know he, that Chemosh was mad at his land. So there's wrath that Kimosh has wrath and then Kimosh gives instructions to the king to go fight um and verbs like that <clears throat> relatively rare in about in the stila for Kimosh. um but manifestation therefore so manifestation and kind of realms of authority spheres of authority or power are more easily identified i think in light of the extant text and they do map out into different in different areas and arenas a kind of differentiation of services this is one of the great gifts of polytheism according to many people right is that you know exactly who to ask for what (laughs) i need fertility i go to the fertility god i need rain i go to the rain god 
and it's, it's all diversified. And I know exactly what services I'm, I'm asking for. And I know I'm asking the right person for them. In my head, I was like, I don't know. It seems like monotheists could just say, it's like Walmart. You go one place for everything. <laughs> Instead of showing to all these different That's stores right. for all this different stuff, it's homogenized, but the, so the representation right. is certainly not one. And we could obviously, what I'm about to say is true of Marduk, Kimash, Bell, whatever. This is not an infinite or non-corporeal or just some huge cosmic consciousness that is internally satisfied and needs or wants for nothing, which is what I think the contemporary understanding of what God is. Right. No, none of them are represented right. that way, not in the Hebrew Bible or in the ancient Near Eastern historical record, correct? I think that's right. I think what you're describing is at least partly the legacy, the gift of later theological speculation in Greece and thereafter and in, in Christianity and Judaism as well. Yeah, I think that th some of those sorts of things that people would associate with godness now is monotheistic godness, at least omnipotence, omniscience, omnipresence. These things are categories that are maybe at best inchoately present in some of these other ancient religions and including that of scripture. They might be present, but not as fully developed, right? As the kind of reified abstract principles we think about now. That's right, I think. Mm -hmm. For anyone listening, I'm not trying to pick a fight with someone who believes in that. This, that was a setup to ask. It would that's be right. in a inappropriate to approach every biblical text with the idea that's what's being represented and 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 uh pointing out that you said if it's there it's incohate like it's a developmental thing if it is in the text but you can't yeah. assume that yahweh's stance on the other gods when elijah is like laughing at them like pour more water on is right, they're not right. existent and this god is infinite so much as it is right. he's just bigger and better yeah, I think that's probably right for the kind of the initial audience. There's both, I think in the broader scheme of things, there, there's two things to say. One is what you're emphasizing, which I think is quite right. How do we respect the textual witnesses that are given to us in the form that they come to us? They're, they are not as developed, reified, abstract, systematized as later Christian theology, to just lift up that example, specifies. They are not yet the achievement of the third or fourth century CE councils that reflect on the nature of Christ and the two natures of Christ or the relationship of the three persons of the Trinity. Definitely not. And if we don't, and if we're overly, this is where you're going, if we're overly concerned about some of those later achievements, we might actually miss what the text actually give us or treat the text too loose and fast and therefore miss important elements in the textual witness. The responsivity, and then in my mind, I'm an ordained Methodist minister, so I'm a Wesleyan kind of Arminian theologian. And for me, one of those things we would miss might be how truly responsive God is to the human project and to the human characters. Like human characters do something and God actually truly has to respond to them. God doesn't manipulate everything. God seems to be interactive with them. It, and that's at the level of the text. And I, so I think that what you're saying is exactly right there. The, the, the second thing I would say that they, another sort of a way to approach these things is 
of course, the fact that many people, religious people, read on the other side of the third and fourth century <laughs> decisions about Christology and Trinitarian formulations. And that's appropriate. The Christian reader reads the Old Testament through the lens of the New Testament. Jewish readers read the Tanakh through the lens of rabbinic Judaism and the Mishnah and the Talmud. And all of that is appropriate. I think it's totally appropriate. It's just not the same as reading, trying to approach the text in and of themselves. I would say at the same time, it's hard to fully assess the text in and of themselves because we live on the other side of all that other stuff. And there are appropriate and less appropriate ways, I think, to read in light of that further knowledge. So I hope that makes sense. I'm trying to have my cake and eat it too a little bit, though I'm with you in our initial approach to the material being as sympathetic as possible to the ancient world. Another quick example from the Psalm, Psalm 82, where it says God takes his stand in the council of the gods and in the midst of the gods, God holds judgment in, a, in its ancient Eastern context clearly represents a kind of divine entourage or pantheon. And that makes perfect sense in the ancient world and should be read as such. Uh, that's probably what they were thinking. They weren't thinking in the same way that we might think now or a religious person might think now, God is talking to the angels or God is, is self-deliberating within the triune Godhead or something like that. In the ancient world, they would have, would have thought about pantheons, would have thought about a head god and junior deities. And there's something to be said about really inhabiting that, that world, of the, 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 the image world that the poem paints for us in order to better understand that poem. You mentioned that there are some ways to do that better and some ways to do that worse. And I think that, that thank you for yeah. staying on, on track with the Psalms, bringing Psalms up. That is a good example, but there, there are, broadly speaking, there are better ways and worse ways to read the Bible faithfully. That's what right. do you think some of That's those right. are? And you could stay on the positive side and not say any of the worst ones if you want. Yeah. So again, as a Christian, as a minister, and as well as someone who tries to attend to the ancient context of these words originally, I guess I would appeal to some doctrines like the full sense of scripture, the sensius plenia, the, the fullest sense of scripture, or canonical readings that would read texts together that were never maybe connected initially in ancient Israel or not connected until much later when the church was around, the Christian church was around and it had literature and it was connecting things. I think there's thoughtful and deep ways, in brief, I'll say this, there's thoughtful and deep ways to think about the Old Testament as Christian scripture. I think most people who are Christians don't have a problem thinking about the New Testament as Christian scripture, but the church, the Christian church has historically had a hard time thinking about the Old Testament as Christian scripture. Not always, not invariably, right? The, the New Testament authors all thought of that Old Testament as immediately applicable to them and their lives and to their understanding of the Christ event and, and all the rest. But very early on in the history of the church, as early as the second century, there's Christians who are struggling with that. Marcion, the archeretic, being, the, being the, the, the foremost and most nefarious of them. Um, I think there's ways to, to read the Old Testament as Christian scripture that is thoughtful, canonical, theological, maybe ecclesiological, that doesn't need to be reduced to finding Jesus in every nook and cranny of the Old Testament. I think that's where I would say it would be a more thoughtful versus a less thoughtful one. I don't think a, a Christian reader has to find Jesus 
under every rock and stone of the Old Testament for it to be a thoughtful Christian reading. The Christian reader can think in Trinitarian categories without having to reduce that to just one member, the second member, and, and focusing on Christ. That's why I would say I, that's one example of a kind of a thin Christological reading versus one that might be more robust. And I think we could probably find analogs among Jewish readers and people who think of the Tanakh in a sort of a rabbinic way that's very robust versus one that might be reductive. So that's the kind of thing I'm thinking about. Does that make sense and help out? No, that does make sense. I'm beginning to wonder the more experts I talk to, and there's a reason I, I put Stanley Hauerwas in as early as I did, because that Watership Down, I don't know if you got a chance to listen to that, it's fine, but the Not Watership yet. Down yeah. example of a community engaging with a narrative. They are yeah. both picking it up and determining what shape it's in as a mm -hmm. group. And there are some people who are a little, everyone's contributing in a different way. And, mm -hmm. and what I'm hearing from you, even though there are points where you say for a Christian reader or a Jewish reader, is it's inevitably a communal thing, right? I think so, because even if the individual reader is by him or herself, they really are never alone. That's something that I learned from the psychologist D.W. Winnicott. Even when we're alone, we're not alone because alone is only a category that's defined in relationship to other people. So the individual solo reader is never alone. There's always other people. And the other people are the people who gave this text. They are the, especially if you're reading in translation, they're the people who translated this text, who made countless decisions, interpretive decisions about rendering this text in your vernacular. But even if you're reading in the quote unquote original, if you're reading the Hebrew Bible, you're reading a codex that was produced in 1002 or three CE. And that's came to us in a certain tradition, Masoretic tradition, written and pointed by a certain scribe who signs that, that codec. And then, and even you go further and further back, it's other people all the way down, right? It's community all the way down. It's the scribes who passed it on and the tradents, and it's the people who were present at the creation who penned these words and, and then maybe revised them. And then their editors and their disciples who passed them on. So I think there's always a community. And then there's a community of reading, an interpretive community where this is or is not a, a welcome or a recognized or reasonable reading. And that, that community of reading, that reading tradition could be very parochial. It could be, even if it's a big community, it could be a religious one. But it's also just, it could just be literary, that when I see something that is about a beautiful flower, in a text, it's probably not about a stinky trash can. And that's just, that's me reading in community, not in a narrow religious way, but just on what, I don't know, how literature functions, how words mean in context and so forth. So yeah, I think it, there, there's some level at which even when one is solely operating on their own in their study, which is what I do most of the time, there's always a community kind of looming and it's the scholarly community. It's the people I'm reading about the text I'm working on. It's the people who gave me that text were responsible for it. And it's the people to whom I'm somewhat responsible, whatever those, whoever those people might be. The scholarly community, if I'm writing for academic purposes, a religious one, if I'm writing more in that mode. So yeah, I, I think that's right. One of the things that has occurred to me, mostly in the reading, it hasn't come up that much in the conversations, but 
in, in some of the reading I do to prepare for these interviews, what you're saying. So the idea that I don't have any in here, but, but if I go into my bedroom and I pick up the Harper Collins study Bible, like that is a single bound volume of multiple texts. I think that one has the Apocrypha in it. So it's got more stuff than I even grew up with in my mostly Baptist background in Southern United States, but to get that the work that it takes to produce just to produce that volume and then you think well okay what critical editions were used of the hebrew bible the new testament and the the apocrypha respectively and so so i think i have the yeah i have the sbl greek new testament so a group Mm -hmm. of people who are smarter and know more than i ever will about biblical Mm -hmm. texts had to sit down and decide what is this text going to look like that it should humble people that so much work has taken place, but there's a kind of cynicism, I think that Mm. is rooted in Mm. an individual, like approaching quote, the Bible. And I've had some conversations with my friend Daniel on how I should even engage with people. He's maybe you should just say Bible. And there there are other podcasts, podcasts that we don't say the Bible, we just say Bible. Or if you say the Bible, he's, maybe you should communicate, this is what I mean. Yeah. Anyway, I know that's a lot of stuff, but that's the thing. To get the this yeah. collection of ancient texts in a readable form for an English-speaking yeah. audience in 21st century America yeah. to be able to come anywhere near understanding it. And on top of that, there are still people who are publishing articles that are saying, yeah, I don't think that's the right way to translate this word. I think we would be better to translate right, right. Panuma as right. breath than spirit. That sounds too nebulous. Right. And I know what we started out talking about is Yahweh looking like these other guys, but the amount of work that goes in to, to developing an understanding to say, look, we have all this new historical information. How do we continue to understand yeah. the Bible? And you can say, yeah, I don't care. What I tell my 16-year-old son is, you can say whatever you want, but you shouldn't say everything you want. But you could say, I don't care. I don't care about any of that stuff. I'm going to just keep right, right. reading the Bible. But I think you're doing yourself right. and the people who did a lot of work a disservice if you do that. And maybe approaching it as a yeah, part of a community will help remedy that. I think so. I think you're right. That it's a Herculean task to bring anything forward now from way back then. On the other hand, in the case of the Bible, we have living tradition, millions of people in a kind of, in an unbroken tradition that have continued to look to these texts for support, help, nurture, life. It's a stunning thing. Very few artifacts of antiquity can boast that. And the artifacts that can are, it seems to me, invariably sacred in some way, but For sure, in the case of the Bible, it's been that generating matrix of scripture. But to get it here in English, in vernacular English, in English that changes, and so that requires a new translation every 20 years or so, that is just a Herculean effort that does proceed incrementally. And that's why, yeah, it's community even when someone thinks it's not. Translators translate when they do. They always are translating with other translations in the room, if not up on the screen or open on their desk. They have them in their heads. I was raised on one translation as a child in church, and I don't use that translation much anymore. But if there's an echo, if a cadence of a text is in my head, it's probably 
from that childhood translation because it got in there. So 100% yes on that. And I think the other thing I would add to what you said is that it does matter, these niceties, at some level. It may not, they may not all matter equally, and they may not matter equally for each reader. And that difference or m- level of mattering may be because the nature of the reading is different. Oh, I'm interested only in a religious reading that's about me and my family right now, so I could care less about Kimosh. Or... I'm just interested in the literary X, Y, or Z. Or what. I mean, so a number of reasons why every historical or literary nicety may or may not be operative. But for those who kind of care about their religiosity, their religious experience, their faith is being rooted in their authoritative material, then at some level, all of these questions matter. And they at least matter to the people who are, are doing this hard work on getting the text to us. Uh, so no, we don't have to necessarily, the average reader of the Psalms may not care about divine pantheons, but at some level, someone does and needs to, in order to, to properly convey that. And my own sense of this as a Christian theologian is that is, is Anselm's idea that faith seeks understanding. And so that's always a good default uh, opinion to go to that why why do I need to know more why do I want to know more is because faith seeks understanding faith doesn't seek ignorance. <laughs> Thank you. That was really good. I so I don't want to take up your whole day. I'm going to start to transition. <laughs> is there Please. before we close out? Is there anything in the essay that you were hoping would come up that didn't come up because I took us down whatever rabbit trails I was chasing? Only that I think the the one, one piece we didn't talk much about is that last little bit of the title, the rule of faith. And I think that's maybe a distinctive aspect in this essay. It's influenced in part by my discussions with Colin Cornell about this, but in this paper, this essay emerged from a doctoral seminar that Colin and I talked together at Emory and that I ended up, he, he kept saying, you need to write some of these ideas up. He said, I challenge you to write a paper for the final seminar and give it to the students. So I did. And that was the the basis for this essay. But the rule of faith came to me as a kind of interesting idea. Colin's work has really demonstrated in my mind, the importance of a, of a scripture, of a sacred collection of material or authoritative in some way that allows a God to preserve or to survive longer than others. So in his own work on Chemosh, he's talked about the sort of ultimate absorption of Chemosh into Ares, the great god Ares. But Chemosh just doesn't have enough tech to really survive and or enough adherence. And the, the biblical God does. And the biblical God is this canon of scripture, however it gets developed and whenever it gets, it's, it's, I, I'm not worried about it at the moment. When I'm worried that it exists at some point in time and blah, blah, blah. We can talk more about that. But... To me, this rule of faith idea is really intriguing because it, it, this is what seems to have generated much in the early church. And that is this kind of outline of the faith in question form, maybe in creedal form, outline form. That's to me poetic. Other people speak of it as a narrative, rightly or wrongly. In any event, rule of faith is a kind of condensation of the faith that then exists in a kind of feedback loop with the scripture itself. It's not the same thing as the scripture in the early church, but it's a kind of help with the scripture. And this feedback loop of practice and practice with a kind of reduced set 
of vocabulary terms, as it were, and then the full dictionary, and then this kind of ongoing, that I think is really important. And it's a slight addition, friendly amendment to Colin's real great attention on the, the scripturalization. I think that was a real breakthrough in thinking about this. And then what I've tried to add is maybe there's also this feedback loop of practice, faith and practice with the literature. And I think that, that helps explain why Yahweh survived and Kimosh and so many others did it. Scripture, yes. And then this ongoing practice of faith and feedback loop, which serves to update the tradition as we move along. So that's the only thing, other thing I would throw out there about the essay. I don't remember which verses off the top of my head, but I remember hearing that the first, I think the first few verses of 1 Corinthians 15, some people proposed the idea that was like a very early creed, talking about the resurrection and so it's a kind yeah. of a confessional thing that got worked into this letter. Is That's what I was thinking. So, of course, there's like the Nicene Creed. It's very early on, Apostles' Creed, very early on. Is that the kind of thing that you're talking about where they yeah, develop this understanding the, of the faith creed. and then they engage with it? Yeah, the creeds are, for many people, instantiations of the rule of faith, which may have, which pre-existed them, or maybe the creeds are instantiations, literary instantiations of them or early forms of them. The creed go back to things called the, like the Roman symbol. And we don't have, we, there's a little bit of fuzziness as far as I understand. I'm not an early church historian, but as far as I understand these matters, there's a bit of fuzziness about what the rule of faith exactly is or constitutes, but it seems to be this sort of kind of outline of things, catechetical questions about who created the world and who is Jesus Christ and so on. And there's just brief summaries and those brief summaries then get worked out and developed vis-a-vis the authoritative literature and, and in practice. What does it mean to practice God is creator of heaven and earth? What does it mean to practice Jesus Christ born of the Virgin Mary suffered under Pontius Pilate? Those, those become the kind of questions that engage a lived practice. In terms of the Bible, one of these would be, in my mind, the Shema, of course, is often lifted up as a, a creedal-like statement. For me, the mercy formula in Exodus 34, which is repeated some dozen times across the Bible, is probably even more creedal. That is the Lord, merciful and gracious, bounding in steadfast love, and so on and so forth. That's repeated all, a, a number of places in the Bible, including the book of Jonah and Nahum and things like this. That to me is a kind of creedal statement. Or famously in Deuteronomy, Gerhard von Rad in the last century tried to develop Deuteronomy 26, a wandering Aramean was my father. And that little thing is a kind of creedal statement around which then a bunch of things grew. And for Von Rod, eventually the Pentateuch kind of grew. That's challenged and is probably not accurate, but it does reflect the kind of growth of tradition that, that I'm getting at. And so that tradition can begin in a kernel, get informed, grow, get uh, condensed, get expanded, et cetera. So yeah, that's right. I think. Which ultimately may answer some of the questions that arise from your essay, your article. But like you said, we don't know. Maybe we'll get more data, more information over the years. But for now, we got to take what we get. That's right. That's right. Thank you for bringing that up. I apologize for leaving that out. I sometimes no, no, I just get so excited. I pet the bunny too hard. So thank you for <laughs> no, uh, pulling us good. out of that. Do you have any recommendations for the listeners or for me? What they should be reading, listening to, watching, that kind of thing. Oh, wow. Just generally <laughs> about stuff. 
all over the map, just anything. You know? Well, what? So yeah. in the last two interviews, and Eat I've more said, vegetables. <laughs> in, in in the last two interviews, I've said, you know what? I'm not going to do this for everyone, but I think I am because I like this question. What do you read for fun? But I do want to hear more yeah. broadly. Are there in that vast area of things that fall under biblical studies? Are there people or places that you would push us to? But then also, what do you read for fun? Mm. Yeah, so for fun, I read in my discipline for the most part. <laughs> I like my work, and so I don't really have an extensive, much to my shame, I don't have a, a really robust reading program outside of what I work in. That's I such a professorial to answer to that, I know, isn't that it part of the question. I know. I, I do try to read, I do try to read a decent amount of poetry. I'm a poetry lover and teach some classes on the Bible and poetry. So I try to read poetry. One of my favorites there is Sharon Olds. I like Sharon Olds a lot. Of course, uh, Billy Collins is a favorite of many people, former U.S. Poet Laureate, Robert Bly, Linda Paston. Um, these are some of the people. I recently read uh, a collection by Marie Howe. So those are a couple of the things I read in the poetry side. And yeah, so I think in terms of non-biblical studies reading, it would be that, it would be the poet, poetry stuff. So they, 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 that's at least a couple of recommendations about reading, yeah? And I'll in, have in those the field, in the show notes. In the field, I think on the, along the lines we're talking about, the work of Mark Smith, Carol Vandertorn, is massive. I think Otmar Kale, K-E-E-L, and it looks like Kiel, but pronounced Kale. Otmar Kale is really a pioneer in a lot of these things. And especially in looking at what the visual, ancient Near Eastern visual data contribute to our understanding of ancient Near Eastern gods and religion. And his former student, Christoph Ullinger, U-E-H-L-I-N-G-E-R, that, that whole school of thought, also Sylvia Schroer, the Freiburg School from Switzerland is just a remarkable repository of religious historical questions that has been mostly undervalued by biblical scholars who've been really focused on the texts. And sometimes with the archaeology as well, this is a bit between the two because it's maybe a little bit more armchair archaeology. It depends on archaeology, but really with these visual data in their assessment. And I just, I think that is just a remarkable contribution. So I'd say Kale Ullinger and Schroer, the Freiburg School, and then Smith and Vandertorn. These are some of the people that I really look up to on is these the, matters. Is there something specific by Mark Smith? And I ask because I read one or two of his books and it was him and Douglas Campbell reading those guys, trying to pick through what they were writing in 2020, 2021, that made me say, yeah, I need to start bugging people and, and recording interviews. Yeah, I think on this particular matter of God mergers or God's um, relationships, his book, God in Translation, is a very important one. And then he's also got the, oh gosh, the, the title eludes me. Is it called God, Yahweh and the, and the Gods? That might be the title of the book by, by John Day. But he's got, a, he's got one on, on Yahweh and the other gods. And it's in a second edition published by Erdman's early, early 2000s. The Early History of God, that's what it's called, that's Early right. History of God. That one and God in Translation by, by, by Mark Smith. He's had some other ones too, but those two I think a would, ton. Be, would be good. Yeah, He's a ton. written a bunch. I have uh, Origins of Biblical Monotheism over here. Yeah, there you go. That's two or three other. There you go. That's, that's the one? Yeah. 
that's one of them. That's okay. one. But I was thinking of like the other two is the or as uh, the uh, early history of God. It's the okay. second edition and God in translation. Yeah. Okay. I will link all of these in the show notes. So great. unless you have anything else, I feel happy calling this one good. No, this is great. Thanks so much for the time. Jared enjoyed it and for the questions and hope I answered them relatively helpfully. So. Thank I, I, well, thank you a ton. This was a fun conversation. Yeah, I appreciate it. Take care. Have a good one and take care. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe and rate the podcast on your favorite platform. If you are interested in following, supporting, or engaging with the podcast anywhere else, check out the link tree that I've hyperlinked in the show notes. Take care.